Where are you? What part of the world? I'm Ohio. Ohio, yeah. Where are you at? San Diego. Okay, so yeah, it's warmer there. Yeah. But it used to be 70 degrees all year here. And now, like, the evenings got down to, like, 40, 42, which is, you know, unheard of. We're so spoiled here yeah. that if it gets to 69, we get out our parkas and, and think that we're dying. And if it gets to 71, we're yelling global warming. <laughs> well, I, hold on. Sorry, I'm, like, typing this in. Yeah, it's. I grew up in Tennessee. So it's a little bit warmer than here. I am not a fan of cold weather at all. Yeah. So, How did you end up where you are? Um, actually, my parents grew up here. And when I graduated high school, I moved up and stayed with my grandparents while I was going to college. And then I ended up getting pregnant my first year and um, got married to fix that. <laughs> and I was raised Southern Baptist, so that's what we did. I and, understand. Um, yeah. <laughs> So it was, uh, yeah, that was how, so it was just, I had actually, I was married before I'm remarried now. So yeah, I ended up just, I don't know, once you kind of start a life somewhere, it's really hard to uproot and move when you have kids, especially I have seven children. Wow. So seven children. I always say like, I hate Ohio. People are like, you should move. I was like, it's a whole process. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, it's like moving a baseball team. (laughs) Yeah. It's a whole process. So that's pretty much how that goes. But, you know, I would, I mean, there's, there's parts of Ohio that, that is good. Um, the cost of living here is obviously, um, cheap. I mean, it's pretty darn cheap here. So that's a, that's a plus, uh, you know, our house, gosh, I don't even know how much our house would be somewhere else. Millions. I mean, yeah. so, you know, we're able to, um, have, have the house the size we need where we probably would not be able to afford it in a lot of other places. We were thinking we, we live in San Diego and we were thinking, I was thinking about a year and a half ago to move back to my hometown, Philadelphia. Um, Okay. and, And people said, you're crazy. You know, why would you move from San Diego to Philadelphia? And when you think about it from the perspective of weather, they were a hundred percent right because the weather is so nice here. Yeah. But if you think about it in almost any other perspective, the culture, the diversity, the education, the entertainment, the proximity to theater and, and you know, amazing things that are going on, uh, sports teams, all, mm. all, you know, then you realize it's a huge, huge difference to live in a place that has a lot of those things rather than just a place that's beautiful and has the ocean. But we live in a 2,200 square foot house, which is a nice size house, not, you know, not, not too big. But we could have gotten a house triple the size of the house that we're in. I would say. In the most exclusive area of Philadelphia for a half, for half of the price of what our house was, what it's all for. Yeah. I always get um, shocked, actually, like sticker shocked. I have friends that are realtors in California. And I have one in particular that posted, it wasn't that long ago, a couple of weeks ago, posted, this is a hot deal. And it was just a normal ranch house. And it was yeah. like $564,000. I was like, oh my gosh. Oh yeah. Oh my God. I was and like, I, oh my gosh, cheap. I can't even imagine. That would be cheap here. Yeah. And he was just like, this is like a hot deal. You better act quick. And I'm sitting there thinking, good grief. You know, and my, my husband makes pretty good money and I make pretty good money. And I can't even imagine paying those prices, but 
I've never lived in the West, you know, the Western part of the world. I've only lived kind of on the East and it is cheaper here. It is. I mean, well, especially in the areas that like the mid, not the East coast or the West coast and anything in between is a lot cheaper. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's what I mean. East from where you're at. Yeah. So yeah. Well, and I've, I've, I've never lived in Philly, but I've been to Philly. Um, Last time I was in Philly was probably last, actually 2019. We we did some speaking engagements in Philly. Oh, wow. um, I like Philly, especially um, kind of the, the older, more historic parts, but yeah. I love history is why yeah. I yeah. love old buildings. We're in an old bank right now. Um, that's what this building is, but I, I love, you know, history of all kinds. So. When you think that you can go and see the Liberty Bell and the place where they signed the Declaration of yep. Independence and you know, and where Betsy Ross made the flag. I mean, the, it sounds sort of, you know, cutesy, but it, it there's power in those places. Oh, there, I truly believe that there is. And it is, it's surreal standing there. It was funny. Um, you mentioned where they signed the Declaration of Independence. Um, my kids were watching National Treasure the other day and you know how it shows in the room. Also, I was like, I was there, yeah, I, I was know. there, you know, <laughs> my kids were like, why? Cause they, I haven't got to take them yet. That was the plan. Like typically, like if I have to go somewhere for business, and I see something like, oh, the kids would love this. We'll try to take them back. Well, we had plans on taking them, you know, to Philly this year. We had plans actually for Christmas this year to take them to New York to see Rockefeller Center because they've never oh, seen yeah. it. Oh, yeah. And, oh. you know, COVID's kind of squashed those plans. But, you know, they were kind of a little bummed. But I told them, I was like, you know what? I was like, there's there's always another year. I'm sure it'll still be there. <laughs> but the neat thing, in, like in Philly, is you can get on the train and in 90 mm-hmm. minutes you're in New York. Absolutely. So you could take the train to go out to dinner and to a show in New York and come back that night. Yep. And, you know, in, in San Diego for New Year's Eve, they don't celebrate 12 o'clock midnight. They celebrate nine o'clock because it's 12 o'clock East Coast time. Oh, yeah. And then watch the ball coming down in the East Coast. And by 930, nine quarter, 10, they're closed. I mean, oh, it's that- crazy. Yeah, that that would be kind of strange. Although it would go with my sleep schedule lately, I could keep joking around that by nine o'clock I'm done. Now <laughs> I completely wiped. Used to I could stay up, you know, I could stay up and do whatever. And now it's like I can't. I don't know. Getting older, my kids have sucked my soul out. So in a good way, I love my kids. I wouldn't change having them. Let's let's talk. Let's talk a little bit Please. about you, though. I would love for you to kind of. Um, tell our listeners, you know, who you are. And obviously you've got your beautiful book, which I love the book, but I am a sucker for black and white and geometric shapes. And I, I just love it. Loved your cover of the book. Um, it's Thank a beautiful you. book. Thank beautiful. you. Thank you. I wanted to make the book um, such that even if people saw it or just picked it up and didn't even read it, that they felt something from it. I wanted to feel it with some sort of vibration that mm-hmm. would make people just feel better just by looking at it. And so for you to say that really makes me appreciative of, of you for noticing that that's without even realizing that was part of the intent. I think if I look back on the life that I've lived, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that I haven't lived the life most people have lived. I've had amazing highs in my life, things that people dream of having have happened to me. And I've had tumultuous lows, things that people dread could ever be possible. And what those have allowed me to do is I've been able to sit with some of the richest people in the world, 
not in their lecture halls or in their board boardrooms, but around their dinner table. And I've been able to um, meet their parents. I've been able to play on the floor with their kids. And they've been kind enough to give me counsel. And sometimes they've been kind enough to ask counsel. And I've been so enamored by that and so touched by that respect and that and that honor that they've given me to just get to know them as people not just as you know worldwide names but i've also had the brilliant opportunity to sit on street corners with some of the poorest of the poor to sit on their cardboard boxes and meet their friends and their families and sometimes they're not the family of origin but the family that they've created around themselves and we've shared dinner together also sometimes it was just the bread and the cheese and the bottle of wine that I brought to them to sit with them with. And one of the things that I've noticed, Maria, is that it doesn't matter how rich or poor you are. It doesn't matter what color your skin or what religion you practice or don't practice. It doesn't matter what you say you believe or what you even do. Everybody that I've met and seen wants three things. They want to be loved and accepted They want to be listened to and heard, and they want to be acknowledged and validated. And so I've lived an amazingly rich life. I've I've had the opportunity to run a billion-dollar company that I walked away from to hitchhike around the world to find peace and happiness. I've had the opportunity to study in in one of the most exclusive seminaries in Jerusalem, Israel, to to study to be a rabbi. And I left one day before becoming ordained. I have the opportunity to sit in a monastery for 10 years and practice the life of being a monk. And I walked away from that also. And I've seen, I've started businesses and grown businesses. I helped grow a business from $3 million to $100 million in a 10-year period of time. And I walked away from that also. Because what I realized finally in writing The Mosaic is when my parents passed away, that my parents passed away when I was a kid. And when I asked the adults, where'd my parents go? Like, where are they? Because I was just a kid. And they told me they went to this place called heaven. So I was obsessed with finding that place called heaven. And I looked for it in all the different places. I looked for it in business. I looked for it in people. I looked for it in psychology. I looked for it in religion. But I never found it. Until I realized the place called heaven was not a place with a guy with a much who looked much better than me and had a much better beard than I have and had a big G on his sweatshirt. No, that wasn't the place that I was looking for. What I realized is heaven for me is the perceptual shift that happens when we look at something that we've always seen and we've always seen it that way. And suddenly from a grace or something else, we, we, we somehow manage to see it, what we've always seen one way, another way. And I think about the world and how, how caught we are in seeing the world the way we see the world and thinking the way we see the world is the way the world is. But the way we see the world is just that. It's the way we see the world. It isn't the way the world is. And so I asked myself this question through the writing of the mosaic because what happened is when I went in search of the place called heaven, and this is what the mosaic showed me, is I didn't find the clergy men and women, and I didn't find the 
the the Reiki masters that were and the Aborigines elders and the Swamis and the gurus and the rabbis. What I found was common ordinary people. I found the street worker and the trash man, the homeless guy and the juice maker. And I and I wondered why in the search for heaven am I finding these people? Why are these people being presented to me? And I heard this voice say to me, just you're here with them. Don't question so much why. Just sit with them and listen to them. And when I sat and listened to them tell me their story, Maria, in 100% of the cases, the person that I thought I initially saw was not at all who they were. And so when it happened over and over and over and over and over again, I started to wonder, what would life look like if I could get myself out of the way and just see what was actually there without me putting my perspective on it? And I wondered, is there anything that I see that way? Or is everything that I see just the way I see it? And, and that's just, I see the world that I see. I don't see the world that is. And at that moment, I looked over to my right and I saw the monk unzipping the sky and inviting me to walk through that hole in the sky to a parallel reality where he introduced me to the wise one who is the keeper of the mosaic. So that's sort of the trailer of the mosaic. And if people would read it, I would thrill me that they would read it. Not, not for the dollar, few dollars I'll make for it. That's also nice. But what happens in reading that book is somehow you start to realize that nothing is the way it seems. And when you have the realization that nothing is the way it seems, then you start to ask yourself, well, if it isn't the way it seems, what is it? And that inquiry has led me through amazing disruption of my life. Everything that I thought was real, I'm suddenly starting to see it isn't real. It's just stories that I've told myself so many times that I've actually believed the stories are real rather than just stories. And when I unraveled those stories and I saw that they weren't real, they were just stories. Then I started to say, wow, what is actually here? I love that. I literally have had chills several times when you've been talking um, because I, I mean, I think you're 100% right. Life, and I say this a lot, actually, that life is is pretty much all perspective. It's you know, we see the world, like you said, the way that we see the world. And I think most of the problems that we face in this world now, if people would just take a step back and look at things from another person's perspective, I don't think there would be the bickering and the arguing because, yeah. you know, we can only experience things and see things the based on our own life experiences. And I think I'm a big believer that nobody is 100% good and nobody is 100% bad. And all of us kind of fall in the gray area in between. And, you know, with that being said, you know, if unfortunately you've lived a life that you've, from your perspective, seen mainly anger and sorrow and, you know, your perspective is going to be tainted with that view. And, you know, a lot of times, like when you were mentioning sitting down with people and what you found with people was not what you thought you was going to find. I found that myself with people. You know, you initially get one feeling from somebody, but once you sit with them a second, you see the layers start to peel back. And a lot of what they seem like they are is not in reality what they are. They've just, they're just projecting their own hurts and their own sorrows and their, you know, their own 
everything from their own life's perspective. And I think it's so important to kind of take that time and think about things because, you know, we all have our coping mechanisms, you know, you follow me on Facebook, so you can probably guess mine is humor. (laughs) So (laughs) that's my coping mechanism. If I'm having a rough day, I'm not the screamer, you know, I'm not that angry person. I'm going to make a joke because that's how I cope. It's like a brain reset. And, you know, we all have our things. And, you know, again, that comes from how I was raised. That's how I was raised. My dad is very much the comedian. <laughs> you know, he yeah. will turn everything into a joke. So we tend to kind of mimic things from our own perspective. And I, and I love that you, in your book, you're expressing your own experiences in a very real world way that anybody can kind of chase. Anybody can go and sit down with the homeless. And I strongly suggest you do. And I've done that too. Sit down with the homeless man or woman on the street and really just talk to them. Cause I think a lot of times they end up just kind of being white noise. And it's so sad. It's the homeless has really got, I've got a soft place for homeless, the homeless people I've watched as they get ignored. And I've watched as, like I said, they've, they've, become almost white noise. It's like, they're just expected to be there. And we we're so used to the idea that they're there that we just walk by them and it just breaks my heart, especially in New York. I mean, like when I, when I've been in New York for business, I guess, because I don't, didn't grow up in New York. I live in the middle of nowhere. I have Amish people park in my parking lot. I'm like out in a really rural area. (laughs) It's foreign to me to kick them and ignore them and scream at them for yeah. laying on the heater when it's, you know, two degrees outside. And, you know, but if, if they would just take the time, just slow down and sit and talk to them or, you know, bring them a cup of coffee or ask if there's anything that, you know, you can do to help. They're not expecting you to change their life, but you, you never know what butterfly effect, just the smallest act of kindness can have. Yeah. And I think most people don't slow down to even find that out. Can I tell you a story of exactly that that happened to me? Yeah, I would love that. So as I mentioned to you, I've been involved with some of the people that lead millions and millions of people, uh, thought leaders and, and, and teachers. And because I also ran, I also helped Hay House, which is the premier self-help company in publishing, uh, grow from $3 million to $100 million. So I've met some of the most influential people the world knows. One of the people that has changed my life more than anybody wasn't the richest of the rich or the most influential of the influential. It was a homeless man that I met on a street corner in San Diego. And I walked up to him and I just wanted to sit down. And as I was coming, he said, no, 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 this is my area. You can't come here. And I said, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't want anything from you. He said, but if, I, if you're here, I won't get the money and I need to make money. I need to make... I said, how much money do you need to make in a half an hour? He said, $5. I have to make $5 every half an hour because I have people I have to support and other homeless people count on me. So I put my hand in my wallet and I, and I took out $50. And I said, here, put this in your pocket. This should cover the next half an hour. And leave your hat out because we'll get more money too, I'm sure. And he said, okay, you're strange. Sit down. You can sit down with me. And I said, yeah, you're, you're right. You pretty much summed that up pretty quickly. And he said, what is so important? Why do you want, what is it you want to know from me? What is it you want to hear? And it took a little while to get through all of the, you know, fear of what I wanted from him. But it didn't take that long. It took about a half an hour. 
And finally, as I was sitting there with him, I said, Corey, you sit here all day and all night. And you see thousands of people walking past you. If you could stop them for one minute and just say one thing to them, what would you say? And he said, I would tell them to take 10 minutes out of the course of their life and just go up to someone they don't know and ask them, how are you? And I said, God, that's, you know, that's beautiful, but that's a little strange. Like, there's so much the world needs. Why, why would you just ask that? Why would you ask them for a house or food to eat or something like that? And he said, Danny, you've told me a lot of stories. Let me tell you one. I said, okay, with pleasure. He said, about a month and a half ago, I was sitting here. And I hate being a homeless man. I'm so embarrassed and ashamed of myself. And I hate myself for being homeless. But that isn't the worst of it. These people that walk by me, they treat me, they don't treat me like a person. They don't even treat me like an animal. They treat me as, like you said, white noise or just a thing. So people would come by and one day this group of boys came by and I, and I said, hi, how are you doing? And they came and they kicked me and they punched me and they beat me to a pulp. On that same day, as I was laying here on my cardboard box going to sleep, a man stood and urinated on me. The day before, the same day, they came and stole my money from my hat. They, people walk by me and they kick me or they spit at me or they yell profanities at me and they tell me how, what a piece of crap I am. And he said, it's one thing for me to hate my own life, but then I realized I'm not doing anything for the world around me. People hate me. They treat me terribly. So I decided that evening that enough was enough. Danny, the street right behind us is a quiet street. Nobody walks on it. In the evening, it's not lit up. And I decided I was going to go on that street as soon as it turned dark, and I was going to take my life then. And not two minutes after I had that thought, this man in a three-piece suit came up and stood next to me, and he said, how's it going, brother? And I said to him, no, sir, not, you don't want to know. This is not the time for that. That's not a question. I Just keep walking. You're not interested, really. Just keep walking. And he sat down and he said, you have no idea how interested I am. And he sat down next to me and he put his arm around me. And Danny, maybe it was the thought that he was wearing a three-piece suit. Maybe it was the, the sense that I gave him of being someone important. That he would take that time to sit with an unimportant person like myself. A person who had just decided that I was going to take my life. I didn't tell that to anybody. That he sat with me and he held me. Then I started crying crocodile tears into, the, into his shoulder. And then I started to just let it all out. He said, tell me, what's the, tell me all your pain. Tell me all your troubles. I'm here for you. I'm, I'm going to listen. And Corey said to me, Danny, you know, it only took 10 minutes. And after 10 minutes, I felt so much better. And then I realized I can't take my life that night. Because someone important in a three-piece suit actually came up and spent 10 minutes with me. I've hoped that he would come back another time. I wanted to find him somehow, but I had no way of knowing where he was. I never saw him again, but I wish I could tell him that on that day when he sat down with me for 10 minutes, he saved my life. Well, you mentioned the butterfly effect. That story touched me so deeply 
that in every opportunity that I have, every talk that I give, every boardroom that I go into, every conference that I'm a part of, every podcast that I'm on, every show that I do, I try and tell Corey's story. And I try and challenge people who are listening to the podcast or the talk or the, or the conference to take 10 minutes out of the course of their life. What's 10 minutes out of the course of your life to go up to someone you don't know and just ask them how they're doing? You don't need to fix them. You don't need to change them. You don't need to help them. You don't need to convert them. You don't need to uplift them. You don't need to do anything. All you need to do is listen to them and love them. And that was one of three stories that I have like the mosaic. Writing the mosaic was another, and my, my own daughter was the third. That so disrupted my life that I realized everything that I had done prior to that was, was as important as it seemed to be, wasn't important at all. That the only thing that was important for me now was to hold the space for people to feel loved and accepted, listened to and heard and acknowledged and validated. And what I found, Maria, in doing that is that everything that people were not fell, started to fall away from them and who they were started to emerge. And who they were was so beautiful. And sometimes they were only seeing themselves for the first time in those moments that we were sitting together. Because all of the, all of the protection, all of the fears, all the pains that they have experienced have put walls around them so tight and so that they forgot themselves who they were. And my biggest pain in this world that I live in is how few people actually know who they are and how few people act from that place of the beauty of who they are, thinking they have to be somebody else. You don't have to be anybody else. You are the most magnificent, beautiful creature ever created. If you would only stand in your radiance, and that doesn't mean you have to be gorgeously, beautifully good-looking. That doesn't mean you have to have no have a big purpose in the world. That just means you have to show up and do what is yours to do with 100% of you involved in it. You can be sweeping streets, sweeping leaves in the street, or you can be running nations. It doesn't matter. When you live your purpose fully, you're the most exquisite being that can be found. Absolutely. And I, I love that again, gave me chills. I mean, everything that comes out of your mouth, I'm, I'm over here, chills, chills, chills. I'm going to tell you to put on a sweater. I'm no, telling I'm just you. It's so, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's so right on and so much needed for people to hear. And on this show, on a regular basis, I talk about just how important it is to live authentically and raw and real. And I share my own story of, you know, working corporate and trying to wear this mask of perfection and trying to be what I thought other people expected me to be and, you know, never dealing with traumas I had had in the past and stuffing them away because it didn't fit in this, you know, reality that I thought I was supposed to live. And, you know, you can't be somebody else effectively for very long. (laughs) You can't. It starts to eat and etch away your true self. And, you know, one day I just kind of woke up and I just didn't even know who I was at that point because I had been pretending to be what I thought I was supposed to be for so long. And I think, you know, your stories are so, you know, poignant. And I think I've never been homeless, you know, thankfully. Thank God. 
But what I can say is a lot of these people who are homeless, and I've had conversations with a lot of them, they've experienced that in in numerous ways. But one thing that rings true with all of them that I've personally talked to is they don't even know who they are anymore because we, we typically, you know, end up defining ourselves by our job title or, you know, where we live, what we drive, da, 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 all these things. And I'm not saying those things in themselves are bad, but once we start defining who we are by those things, I think that's where it becomes bad. You know, having a good car or having a nice home or having a good job doesn't, you know, mean you can't live authentically. But what I found is a lot of people aren't, and I know I wasn't. (laughs) And, you know, when I found myself having these conversations with even some of the people that were homeless and some of them had already started to figure out who they were far better than when they did have the house, the car, the job, you know, I still, there's there's something that kind of clicked inside of my head that was like, okay, well, you know, this, there's one person in particular, I remember having a conversation with that. It seemed like they had it all figured out. They're sleeping on the street, granted, but they had life figured out. And I was still in this place that I was starting to search. I wasn't sure what I was searching for, but I was starting to search. And, you know, that's, you know, long, it's been a long journey, but it's led me to the why of this podcast even is a lot of what you're saying is just talking to people successfully chaotic came from the idea that, you know, we all define success differently, right? You know, somebody may define it, the job, the car, the whatever, but really we're defining our own success. And I believe, I truly believe that somebody on the street can be more successful (laughs) than somebody that's living a high dollar jobs because success is what quality of life are you having? Because I can tell you, there's been a lot of moments in my life where from the outside looking in, I had it all together. I had everything that anybody would want, but I was dying on the inside. Yeah. I remember, uh, can I tell you another story? Yeah, I'm a storyteller. I, um, I remember um, after my parents passed away, we grew up in a lower middle-class family. And... Um, we were on the East coast and my mother had a sister that was in the Midwest and her sister had married a man who had become a household name around the world. And so when my parents, but they, they weren't that close. They, we weren't, you know, that, that was 50 years ago. And so 50 years ago, the world was a lot bigger than it is now. So now it's a smaller world. Right. And, um, and so, when my parents passed away, I thought I was going to move in with my close friends' family because they were more than welcome to have me. And we were making arrangements to do that when out of the blue, we heard from my aunt and uncle and they said, we're, you're going to come and live with us. And we had a little bit of hesitation about that because we didn't know them very well and they didn't know us. And, but clearly they had the wherewithal to provide for us. And so we were cons- counseled to this is a smart move going and, and and be with them. And they're for your family. After all, they're your family. So we moved out there and um, suddenly I was amidst the elite of the elite in the world. And I remember my closest friend during that, that period of time was a guy by the name of Neil. And he and I did everything together. We were, we were like Mutt and Jeff. You couldn't separate us. And we just loved each other. And he was a little bit of a rebel like me. But, you know, the son of a billionaire. And now I was the nephew of, of the billionaire. 
we would scheme together all the things we would do together when we got older and how our friendship would create these involved, you know, scenarios for people to help the world become a better place. And my uncle offered me after watching me for a, a month and a half, he said, I'm going to offer you the, something that will blow your mind. You're going to start out at the bottom of the barrel, pushing a broom. And I'm going to watch how far you can rise on your own, but I'll mentor you because in 15 years I plan to be re- to retire. And I want you to take over this company in, in, by the time you're 30. So I will watch you and make sure you do everything correctly. I will watch you and guide you to, to be able to sit in this seat and be able to continue the, the success of this company. Long story already too long. I decided not to do that. When I decided not to do that, my aunt and uncle disowned me. They excommunicated me because they didn't, they didn't know what to do. I mean, they, here they'd given me what everybody in the world dreams of. And I walked away from it and they just thought this guy's an idiot. But what hurt me even more is my best friend disowned me at that time too. He said, you're just an idiot. And all the things that we thought we were going to do together, how can you just throw those all away by making such a stupid decision to go hitchhike the world and find yourself? What are you, crazy? Like, grow up, dude. And it hurt me, to be honest. It hurt. That was 50 years ago. About 20 years ago, I was in New York at a hotel called the Mandarin Oriental. Beautiful hotel. I was friends with the people who, who ran the hotel. And so they gave me a friends and family rate there, which was better than staying in a, you know, a, a one-star hotel yeah. in, the, in the pits of New York. And so I stayed there with them, which was just such an honor to be in this beautiful hotel. And the hotel had an elevator from the ground floor to the 34th floor, which was the lobby, and then another elevator from the lobby up to the floors that where your rooms were. And it, the lobby was exquisite because it just overlooked Central Park. And you would sit and have breakfast or drinks or whatever, watching, looking out over Central Park. And I was coming home one evening at about 10.30 at night. And I was coming from the, from the ground floor to the lobby And I was getting out at the lobby when getting into the same elevator that I was getting into to go down to the ground floor. I saw my best friend, Neil, from when I was 15 years old. And he was passing by talking to a group of women. And I said, Neil? And he said, who said that? I said, I do. He said, how do you know my name? I said, Neil, you don't remember, do you? He said, remember what? And talk quickly because the elevator is about to close. I said, you don't remember I was your best friend at 15. He said, Danny? And he stopped the elevator. He said, open the doors of the elevator. He said, "Um, come to the club with us. We're going out to a club. We're going to stay out most of the night dancing and having fun. I said, you know, Neil, I'm not really a club guy, but why don't I meet you for breakfast tomorrow or meet you for lunch or something once you've had a chance? And he said, no, no, no. He said to the people he was with, you go to the club. I'm going to stay here. And he came out of the the elevator and he said, I have a bottle of scotch and some good cigars upstairs in my room. Will you you have some scotch and cigars with me? I said, of course I will. And we sat from 1030 to 430 in the, the next morning, just catching up on 30 years. 
And towards the end, towards the end of our conversation, he said, you know something? I hated you. I said, I know that you, you, you never spoke to me. I called you many, many times and you never spoke to me. And I said, that hurt me, Neil. He said, I hated you because you turned your back on something that we were planning to do together that I think would have been so great. And I needed you to do that because I needed, I needed the person you were. I needed the, I, I trusted you. And then you, you, you let go of my trust. But he said, I look at you now. He said, I'm on my fourth wife. The women you saw me with are women I have affairs with every time I come here. There wasn't just one or two or three. There were about four of them. And we all get together and we have this sort of orgy-like experience every time I come here. I have more money than God. But the inner, the peace that I see in your eyes now, that I laughed at, that I joked at, that's something that I've, I've wanted for so long and I can't, I don't know how to find it. And he said, I, I laughed at you, but I'm not laughing at you now. Because you have nothing. But you have the one thing I want, which would be everything to me. And I said, Neil, that's easy. Like, I'll, I'll just, like, you're my buddy. I don't care what's happened over the last few years. You're my friend. I'll, I'll spend time with you. We'll figure it out. I'll help, I'll help you to have it. It's hard to have. And he said, as soon as I get home, I'm going to call you. Well, that was over 20 years ago. He never called me. I called him many times. He hasn't called me back. And it made me realize that even the thing that we think we really want, so many of us just don't have the courage to go after. Because in the world's eyes, we may not look as good as everybody else. We may not act as good as everybody else. We might not be able to do the things that people think we have to do in order to be successful. But it made me feel how deep the yearning is in people who have everything in the world to have the one thing they don't have which is that sense of fulfillment and happiness and joy in their life of knowing who they are. You know, when you know who you are, it doesn't matter what the world says about you. It doesn't matter if they lift you up and make you into this iconic human being, or if they step on you and spit on you because you know who you are. And when you know who you are, nothing that anybody says has any relevance because they're wrong most of the time anyway. If they think you're great, they're probably wrong. If they think you're an idiot, they're probably wrong. Yeah. So just trust in the power of who you are. And I spend my life now just committed to helping people dismantle all the stories that they've told themselves about who they think they have to be and allow them just to be this immaculate, beautiful creation that they are. Who we are is so much more beautiful than the paintings we've put on the walls that we surround ourselves with to make people believe that's who we are. That's nothing compared to who we actually are. And when you know people who know who they are, they'll walk into a room. They might be the ugliest or most weird people in the world, but they walk into a room and suddenly groups of people start to flock around them. Because they all can feel they have something that they want. They all can feel this person is different than anybody else. I've been accused of being different my fair share of times. Same. <laughs> right? And, and it's a joyous thing. Every time I hear it, I, I celebrate. Yeah. So and I think we share a lot more than we realize. Absolutely. And I, 
And I think that, you know, people that have all the money, they would gladly give it for the peace that you were talking about, the happiness. And I think so many of us think that happiness is a destination that, and I know I fell into that trap myself. Uh, when I, well, when I, you know, achieve this, or I get to this point, or I'm able to do this, then, then I'll be happy. But what I found was when I was able to reach those points, I felt the same. Yeah. And that was, I would actually feel worse every time because I thought when I got there, I would have this feeling that I, that I didn't. And it was so disheartening. And, you know, I've, I've talked to so many other people, especially in the business world, but really in all walks of life that, you know, that is not something that's rare. You know, that feeling is not rare. It's actually super common. And that unfulfillment you mentioned is very real and very powerful. And I think we look externally for fulfillment. And I think that's the worst thing that we can do because, you know, the more you look out to try to find something that makes you happy or to fulfill you, the more you're emptying yourself. And it's not until you figure that out and you flip it and reverse it that you're able to start realizing, okay, what's well, really inside of me. And I just need to tap into that. That yeah. you start to realize where true fulfillment comes from. And sadly, most people waste a lifetime before they figure that out. I'm lucky I didn't waste a lifetime, but I wasted a lot of years, a lot of years looking externally. I think one of the things that is a common disruption that has to happen in people's lives. And one of the things the mosaic has taught me in this simple idea of nothing is, as it seems, is really nothing is, as it seems. And when you really embrace that, you realize even the search for happiness, I think we have this mythological belief that when we find happiness, our, our road will be littered with rose petals in front of us, just making everything beautiful and peaceful. I hope that's true. It hasn't been my path. My path has been a um, an assortment of rose petal paths and tremendous pain. And what I realized is one of the big obstacles in finding the happiness that we seek is that when most people feel pain, they do whatever they can to get away from the pain. But one of the things the mosaic taught me through listening to the common ordinary people is that everything in the world is speaking to us. Pain as a teacher. Is speaking to us. And if we try and get away from it, what will happen? Can I tell a story? You know I'm a storyteller, unfortunately. I love, I love the stories. Okay, thank you. So the other person that's really influenced me in my life in a huge, huge, huge way is my daughter. She's 31 years old now. And then She's been the biggest blessing that I've ever had in my life. But there have been many years where I haven't known that that was true. You see, my daughter's developmentally delayed. So she could never have a conversation like this. When she speaks, people don't understand her. And so she spends most of her time trying to communicate to people who don't understand her. And because we're so close and she's so sacred to me and so and so uh i love her so much that somehow over the course of these 31 years i've managed to understand her sometimes 
Like, it's just something about her. If I know what we're talking about just in general, I'll be able to piece together what she's saying, even though her words don't say it clearly. But there's so many times that I don't understand her. I remember my prayer used to be, God, just give me 45 minutes of a complete conversation with my daughter where I can just ask her what makes her happy, what scares her, what, and that she would be able to answer me just like any other human being would be able to answer me. And those 45 minutes never really came. But I just started to notice a trend that was happening in my daughter. That when she would speak and she wasn't understood or I didn't get it, she noticed I was getting old and maybe thought green was, was leaving me, which, you know, possibly it should. So she would raise her voice and say what she said louder. But it wasn't the fact that it was her volume. Although to her credit, sometimes when she screamed what she was saying, her pronunciation was slightly different. And I got something that I hadn't heard before, but not often. And so when she screamed and I didn't get it, what would happen is she would then throw a tantrum. She would get so frustrated that she wasn't understood that she would start to throw a tantrum. And, and it had nothing to do now with communicating information as much as just letting off steam. And when she threw a tantrum and she still wasn't understood, she would come running at me and attack and to attack me. She would try and rip my shirt or bite me or do something like that. And this went on, Maria, for a long time, like 15 years. And you, you can feel from my essence of who I am that I try, and, I try and believe that I'm a sensitive man that tries to listen and hear and, and get stuff from people. But I just couldn't figure out what the hell was going on because her time frames were all so different. It wasn't like I'm saying that she spoke, yelled, tantrum, and attack all within a course of a few minutes. Sometimes it would happen in the course of weeks. But the same thing was happening. So finally, she was coming running to, to attack me at one moment. And I just sat there and I said, Elisa, this can't go on. You know how much I love you. And you know I want to understand you more than anything in the world. I can't understand your words. Can you speak to me in a way that doesn't use your words? And she stopped dead in her tracks. The rage in her face turned into a smile. And that smile seemed to come from the pit of her being. And she looked at me and in perfect English said, I am daddy. And I said, I'm sorry, expletive deleted. What the expletive deleted are you talking about? (laughs) How in the hell are you doing that? Like, what are you doing? How come I don't know that? And she took her finger and she put it to the side of her head. And I said, little son of a gun have you been putting thoughts into my head and she started to laugh this uncontrollable laugh a contagious laugh that got us both laughing for about 15 or 20 minutes which is a long time to laugh if you think about it and we just couldn't stop laughing but what happened is suddenly the release of all of her desire to try and tell me the way she was communicating to me because she was putting thoughts into my head And I had heard those thoughts, but I didn't trust that that was real. I mean, who trusts that someone's putting, that can't even speak, is is sending telepathic messages to you? And so we looked at each other. And you know, from that moment on, I said to her, Elisa, whenever I can't hear you, just do that now. Now I know that's how you're communicating to me. 
from that moment on, she's never ten- she's never yelled, she's never tantrumed, and she's not. If that would have been the end of the story, I would have been in bliss because now I have a way of communicating to my daughter. But I got a little greedy. Because I started to see the behavior in everybody that I know. I saw it in families. I saw it in businesses. I saw it in government. I saw it in prisons. I saw it in hospitals. And so I started to go out to the places that I saw it happening. And I started to take a look and see, did people really opt from the speak, yell, tantrum, attack mode? And I saw they did. And I realized that teach 31-year-old developed kid developed delayed kid was the answer to how we resolve problems in the world. Because when we listen to what another person's saying and not just fight them, they don't need to scream. When we listen to their scream, they don't need to tantrum. They don't need to create chaos. When we listen to the kids, then they don't need to attack. And, and I saw if we, would, if we would start to listen to the people that stand on balconies and shoot into, into squares, if we would listen to the people that blow up buildings, they blow up buildings, but they won't blow up our buildings. I've, I've spent time sitting with people that hate. They hate as their profession. And when I listened to them and I said, what are you really trying to say? Because I believe just like my daughter, you're, you're yelling, you're tantruming, you're attacking now. What If I could hear you speak what you wanted to say, what would you say to me? And when they say that, they say, Danny, we know you don't agree with us. We know you don't believe like us. And that's okay. But the fact that you actually took the time to listen to us, to hear what we said, we've got your back, brother. No one will ever hurt you. We'll take care of you if something tries to hurt you. Because you don't have to believe us. We just will acknowledge and validate it by you believe what we believe. What would that do in a person's business? What would that do in your kids? For God's sake, what would it do to the political environment we're living in right now? And when you think about where does innovation come from? Innovation doesn't cut people following minded people and doing what everybody with the same mind thinks. It comes from unlike minds coming together and sitting together saying, how do you see what we're looking at? Oh, my God, you see it entirely differently than I explained that to me. Because somewhere in the place where you and I see it, we might find a place where we see it and we might be able to innovate a new idea so the world could see it differently. I write about in my book, The Mosaic, but all of it is in the spaces between the words. That's what the real story is, if you discipline speech words. Because when you understand that nothing is as it seems, you start to open up ideas of other people. You start to open up to, to innovation. You start to open up to listening to what the world around you is. <laughs> What's the pain in your body saying? What's the pain of your business saying to you? What's the earth telling us in the way it's acting towards us? What are riots saying to us? We start to learn to listen. And that's why I'm creating a revolution of listening right now. 
based on the teachings of mother, who was not teaching, wasn't teaching any, just a simple story of daughter, based on knowledge that I was given and the experience I was given by a homeless man on the street corners of Ego, and based on the, the spaces in the world, little story of the mosaic, I've been with this assignment to start a revolution listening. There's no cost to join it. There's no cult outfit that you have to wear. There's no religious practice you have to do. All you have to be willing to do is another human being enough that you take a few minutes and say, tell me about yourself. Tell me what's going on. And when you do that, people respond and open up to you in ways that, that you never could imagine. And feeling understood, you hit a couple of points there. I'm, I'm having a autistic child myself. I have an 11 year old who's wow. on the autism spectrum. I, you know, I was actually fighting back tears on a couple of points because he is verbal now, but for the longest time he wasn't. And they told me he would never be, um, which you know, we've gone through the tantrums. We've gone through the exact steps that you said many, many, and he still does. I mean, there's still times that he does. And I know for me, my parenting journey up to that point, cause he's child number five out of seven. You think you have that parenting, you know, gig down <laughs> You know, by the time you're pregnant with your fifth, you're like, I got this, but you know, I didn't, I didn't know what to do, you know, and you know, it's, I had to kind of relearn how to parent, but honestly, and I say this a lot, I thought I was there to help him because he had so many challenges, but really he was sent to help me because then I'm going to try to not cry here, but you know, there were so many parts about the world that I don't think I would be able to see like I do now, if it hadn't been for him, because you mentioned, you mentioned language. And even though he is verbal now, I always explain autism to people that, aren't used to Cade, which is my son's name. They're not used to him as a language barrier because it's easier for people to understand a language barrier because even though he's verbal, his native language isn't English. <laughs> his native yeah. language is autism and it will always be yeah. autism. He can speak I love that. English many times now, unless he's f- super frustrated or scared or, you know, whatever the case may be. And then he reverts back to his native language, which is autism. And it takes a long time to kind of figure out and, you know, watch his mannerisms and figure it out before it gets to the point where we can't communicate through English anymore because he's, you know, he's reverted back to only being able to speak his, you know, native language because he's so frustrated, so scared, so whatever, you know, the emotion tied to it is at that moment. And, you know, what's so hard, and I've watched him go through his own journey, and I've, you know, because he's 11, I've been there with him every step of the way, is other people's understanding. You know, I can remember probably the lowest point that I had with him, you know, and I felt just completely helpless as um, I had just given birth to my sixth baby, who was a surprise because Kate being autistic, I thought, you know, I can't have another one younger. This was a surprise baby, just given birth to him. And I was still nursing, carrying baby in the carrier. He's a newborn. And I had Kate we had gone to some therapy that he went to, which we live, like I said, in the middle of nowhere, driven over an hour to get there, which that's a whole journey with an autistic child anyway. Yeah. I had to stop at the store to get a couple of things, and I knew it was not going to be a fun trip, but I thought five minutes in, five minutes out, we'll just go quickly. 
while people that aren't familiar, you know, 100% with autism, sensory overload is a real thing. It can happen, boom, like that. You know, it didn't last very long. We got in line and unfortunately got behind somebody that was taking a long time at the register and he had had enough. He's melting down in the floor, screaming, kicking, and I'm trying to pick him up. The baby is starting to scream too because now he's hungry. I'm leaking all down my shirt because I was nursing. So I'm standing there, a leaking, dripping mess about to like lose it. I've got a screaming autistic child that's four and a half at that point fighting me and a newborn screaming. And instead of anybody being understanding, somebody's comment to me was, this is exactly what's wrong. And I'll never forget this. This is exactly what's wrong with the world today because nobody will bust their kid's ass when they act up like that and throw fits. And that was it. You know, I was barely holding it together anyway. And I just burst into tears and I said, do you think you can do better? (laughs) Because I don't know what to do because I didn't, I did not know what to do. And I remember I just laid down my groceries. I, you know, got the kids and I took him out to the car where I had to fight him into his car seat. Cause that was a process too. He didn't like his car seat. He yeah. looks like child abuse, fighting them into their car, you know, car seat. And I got into the front seat and I sat there and I just broke down and I cried yeah. and cried. And I remember thinking, God, if you were going to give me a kid that had problems like this, why did you not give him the face? Why did you not give him something that was visual? Because it, to me, in my mind, the only special needs that I had been ex- had experienced with was my uncle, who's Down syndrome. Well, Down syndrome yeah. has a face. You know, they had like somebody yeah. can look at them and they know instantly, yeah. oh, they're having problems because, you know, right. dot, dot, dot. Right. But with Cade, there's no outward visual signs. It's hidden. Yeah. And that was so frustrating to me. And I felt horrible for having those thoughts. But, yeah. you know, I've used that when trying to help other people with autism or understanding autism and all that, because yes, you, sometimes you can see outward disabilities, but not always. There's a lot of times that there's no physical signs, but that doesn't mean they're not struggling. Sometimes Uh, more so on the inside. The things I love about saying is if we would approach our non-autistic community, the way we would have autistic community, the non-autistic community sometimes, no sign look pretty normal they look like everything should be okay they look like but there's something that's creating this their behavior yeah and an autistic in in your life but was act of an autistic son but how about the person screaming obscenities on the street corner leave pro-trump or anti-trump how about the person that is is uh trite you for a few extra cents on an ounce of something that they think deserves to be less. How about all the situations in the world where people appear to be so normal, but somewhere within them lies their non-autistic autism. And within them, and if we only knew what they were going through, if we would only take the time to listen to them, to be able to hear what's actually going on that's causing them to act the way they're acting, Absolutely. would see the world entirely different. I agree. So that's why, for me, evolution of listening is so important. I it's agree. it's so exquisitely important for us to realize that we're all connected. We're not separate. What you feel and what are exactly the same. We just have different ways of showing it. We have different ways of expressing it, but we all want the same thing. 
There's no one who wants the world to be worse off than it is. There's no one that wants to hurt people maliciously. We all want to, we all want to help the world. We, the way one person might do it, the way I might do it, entirely different. It might be reason for us to argue or disagree. But when we get to the core of what we want, we could say to each together, you do it the way you do it, I do it the way I do it. And how do we help and support each other to do that? Because what we want is... And what I about our conversation here is you seem to validate something that so many people have told me. Danny, when you say these things, it seems simple. It seems so easy to understand. So, like, this isn't hard. This isn't a major philosophy. This isn't a part of some religious cult or organization that you have to pledge allegiance to that has doctrines of beliefs or things. This is just human decency. Just what we all know is in our own hearts. And when we just do what we know, when we have the courage to be ourselves and let other people be themselves, what a beautiful world this is. And what a beautiful world we can make of it. It's not easy, And it can change like that. We are one piece of a mosaic away from an entirely different reality. Because the pieces that surround us can either block that reality or open up that reality to us by being a bridge or a gateway or a pathway to the next next piece. And every piece that we're connected to connects us to thousands of more pieces. And all we have to do is just open up that piece, P-E-C-E and P-I-E-C-E, to experience that piece. And it's such such a simple thing. That's why I want people to get the book, to just how will when they experience not only the beautiful story it's told, which is a beautiful story, but how will they experience space between the words of the What will come to them once they start to sit with some of these simple, simple concepts? Nothing is as it seems. We are all connected. Different. What we see at first is not at all what what will happen to us? What will we experience? I know I got your book on Amazon. Can you share? Is there other places to go to get your book? That's, I mean, Amazon is now the behemoth. You know, yeah. you can get it. You can get it on my website, but Amazon will get it to you cheaper and quicker. Yeah. If they want a signed edition, they can get it on the mosaiconline.com. If they want this little bracelet that I wear, also they can get it with, you know, they can get Explain it on my the bracelet. I'm curious. Um, so the bracelet is a, it says, let me see if I can show it to you in a way that you can see it. It says, be kind to you. I love that. And what I realized is so many, so many of the problems that exist in the world simply come from the fact that we just don't know how to be kind to ourselves. So I set up a 21 consecutive day challenge called be kind to you. And the challenge is you practice kindness to yourself for 21, for 21 days. And when you realize that you haven't been kind, no matter what day you're on, you take the bracelet off of this hand and you put it on the other hand and you start over. Now it's, it's day one again when I put it on here. I love that. And so I have to get to 21 consecutive days. 
It took me four months to get to day two. <laughs> it could be hard. It took me nine months to get to Mondays. Yeah. And so the beauty of it is not the completion of the practice. It's the realization of the process of how, of how often we just literally punch we're ourselves. We're enemy, aren't we? <laughs> we are. And when we practice kindness, like as soon as when I, when I hit myself, I naturally want to put up a wall to protect my Well, look how close that wall is. It's a few millimeters from my head. And I don't know if I'm going to hit myself in the face all the time or if I'm going to kick myself in the balls or if I'm going to kick myself on the calf or the feet. So that cylinder goes all the way around me, two millimeters away from me. So what world am I living in when I'm doing that? There's no into me see. There's no intimacy because I'm blocked. So what happens when we have... When we meet meet somebody, what seems to happen, my wall meets your wall. And we think we have connection. But we haven't connected. We've just connected. We've just touched walls. But when I'm kind to myself, I no longer need this wall that protects me from hitting myself. So I can take that down. Now I see suddenly you're, you're in, this whole world is bigger than it is. And I look around and I go, Wow. This world doesn't exist in a two-millimeter cylinder. Look at all that's around me. This is amazing. And the second practice of connection comes, which is kindness and connection to something bigger than me, to source. And suddenly when I see there's something bigger than me that has, that's benevolent and kind to me, that is watching out for me, that wants to guide me through this world and show me what I'm doing here and show me how to operate and, inter- and, and find places for me to function in, then I realize that there's something big that I, that I become vulnerable to that. And I, allow, I realize my desire to control everything in my life is keeping me from being vulnerable to being open to this beautiful presence that wants to show me how to live life and give me some, give me another life to live that is not so control-based as mine. Once I start to do that and I'm vulnerable and open, then I start to look around and I say, boy, if this world is as big as it is, what's my purpose here? Like, why was I created here? What am I here? And, you know, in the years that I've talked to people and worked with people and and listened to people, when I ask them, why do you think you're here? A huge majority of people say, I don't know. What do you mean? What am I here for? I mean, I show up, I go to work, I make money, I I watch TV and I go to sleep. And I just do that. What, What do you mean purpose? Why am I here? But what are you here for? And if you think that this world is so pure of this world, would never would never duplicate a creation to. So throughout all of time, there has never been another person like in this moment to see what you were to do here. And because you're going to do it from this moment forth, end of time, no one will ever have to come to do that again. Don't you think it's sort of important you figure out what that is? Whether it's big or small, it doesn't matter. What are you here to do? What's yours to do? So often we're told, just copy people have done and you'll be successful well you will be successful but you'll be successful financially but you won't feel fulfilled perhaps maybe you will i don't know i see some people that are successful and fulfilled but it always comes because they're they themselves not because they've just followed what someone's done
And so once you realize your purpose, once you, so once you're kind and vulnerable and you realize there's a reason for you being here, that's when, that's when you, you can have conversations like this. And that's when these conversations of connecting with another human being become powerful. That these are the conversations around which we need. But it doesn't take a lot to change the world. It takes a few people committed to what they're doing, committed to being, they don't even have to be committed to the same thing, but committed to being themselves that have the power of the world forever. My mission is to open up and open up and hold the space for those people who want to be kind to themselves and kind to the world, vulnerable to the world around them and open to something that's bigger than themselves, purposeful in why they're here and connected to come in and make a revolution a revolution of spirit, not where we mad and we yell and we scream, but where we love uncontrollably. And that uncontrollable love fills every corner. That if we can be scared of a virus of fear, like the coronavirus, an invisible virus that comes and has literally put a halt to the world, what would happen if we started to get spread knowingly, powerfully, lovingly, the contagious virus of love, an invisible virus that has the power to spread beyond our wildest dreams. And the only way we start, the way I, I know to start that is by doing that one-on-one with everybody that I meet, holding the space for them to be loved and accepted, listened to and Acknowledge and validate it. When my wife did that for me when we first met, she said to me, I love you, Danny. I was in this part of my life. And I said, why would you love me? I have nothing to give you. And she said, nobody's ever asked me why. I love them. I love you because I and in that moment, I felt invincible. Like conquer and I could do anything. How powerful love is. That's the love that I want to share. That's the virus that I want to spread. The that of possible. And we can do it. There's nothing in front of us that we cannot do. Everything is irreversible. There is nothing irreversible. It just takes all the things we've been talking about, which are really simple things to do, to just start doing. And for God's sake, if I can do them, anybody can do them. Because I'm just a little bozo on the bus trying to find my way back home. I love that. If anybody listening wants to find out more about 
Danny's book, The Mosaic. You can go to Amazon. I'll make sure all the links are in the show notes and everything. But um, like I said, it's a beautiful book. So even if you just buy it until you're ready to read it, it's going to be gorgeous sitting on your coffee table. (laughs) But I mean, I strongly suggest that you start reading. I love the conversations that we've had today. And um, I've gone from, you know, chill bumps to chill bumps to try not to cry to try not to cry to <laughs> there's always proved to be very good deep moving conversations and those are the kinds I think that are worth having honestly um you know yeah. you can have superficial conversations a lot but you can really tell I'm sure that you've talked to enough people that you can tell also that you can really tell when somebody is literally speaking from their soul you know, from their spirit. And it's a whole different kind of a conversation. And I really have enjoyed having you on today. Thank you so much for the honor to get to know you and for the privilege of being on your platform. I really appreciate you for having me. Absolutely. And um, I will make sure that all the information to get in touch with Danny Levin is in the show notes. And again, Danny, thank you for being a guest today and we'll stay in touch. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Questions I don't have answers, clearly no manners. Babe.